0: Welcome to A Better Future for All in conversation with Kerry O'Brien, presented by Griffith University and Hodder, Home of the Arts on the Gold Coast.
1: Apart from their gifted storytelling, these three great writers have at least one other thing in common. They all grew up in Queensland, Brisbane in fact, across a span of 45 years. And this conversation tonight can roam wherever our guests want to take it but partly because I was also a Brisbane boy, born 11 years after David, 22 years after Melissa, or before, sorry, Melissa. Before (laughs) before Melissa, 22 years before Melissa, and 34 years before Trent, uh, but mostly because of the importance and influence of place in their stories. I want to start by tapping their childhood memories and reflect on how those memories influenced their writing. So, David... Uh, you were five, I think, when Germany invaded Poland. So your you would have had memories right through that entire war period, I would think. Uh, certainly more by the end than the beginning, but nonetheless, it would have had a big impact on your life. What was what was what sort of memories did you have of those war years growing up in Brisbane?
2: Uh, well, Brisbane in those days was um, a town of about. 300,000 people, large country town, really. uh, And suddenly, uh, almost overnight, there were 200,000 Americans there. And some of those Americans were black. And the first thing that happened was that the city was segregated. Uh, Black Americans were not allowed to cross the river and go into the city. So the city became kind of a a black city on one side, which was all the south side, which is where we lived, uh, and a white city on the other side. I mean, that was a huge change. But for me, the thing that was most extraordinary was um, that Brisbane was a very... Australia was a very, very old-fashioned place. Uh, Australia really hadn't broken into the 20th century uh, we knew there was a 20th century because we saw it up there on the screen all the time. It was American. And, you know, we kept waiting for the no, day... Sorry, when you're talking about the screen, you're oh, you talking mean, about You pictures. mean movies. You're talking
1: about movies. Movies. Television didn't exist, right? No, no, no. no.
2: <laughs> uh, movies. And then suddenly the Americans turned up here and all that world on the screen was the world we were now living in. And... Uh, I think that, that changed, certainly changed Australia, but it changed my view of what kind of world I was in. And um, that was amazing. I mean, Americans told us extraordinary things. They, they told us, for example, that you could eat steak at some other time of the day than for breakfast. <laughs> <laughs> And they also brought with them things like avocados and all sorts of chocolates and stuff. But the, 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 the other thing about all of that was that Brisbane was a town that was in the front line. And we, uh, everybody had a, uh, a dugout or an air raid uh, uh, place in the, in the backyard.
1: It was still in our backyard when, uh, when I was about seven or eight, so in
2: the 50s. Yeah. In the 50s. That became part of our play place. Mm. You know, when we played Cowboys and Indians, it was in and out of those those dug trenches. My father was the senior ARP warden for South Brisbane, so my sister and I kind of saw the drills that happened every Wednesday night and uh, played our part whenever they had a kind of uh, an emergency pretend day. Uh, we were victims, and we were carted off in stretchers to the hospital. Um,
1: in fact, in, in, the, in the ABC's Boyer lectures in 1998, you described the adult world around you in your teen years as forever crouched in an attitude of aggrieved and aggressive self-defence, closed in on itself, a stagnant backwater, and sullenly proud of the fact there was an anxiety at the centre of people's lives. Now, did that date back? And we have to remember, too, it wasn't just the war. there was the depression before the war, and before the and before the depression, there was the Spanish flu uh, uh, pandemic that took sixty million lives around the world, and before that it was the first world war. My parents and your parents would have lived through that era. Yeah. So does that when you talk about the anxiety and that sort of turned in on yourself, what well, did you uh, put that down to?
2: isolation and uh, a belief that we were uh, cut off really from the world we really belonged to which was the western world uh, with London as a metropolis uh, and what we had feared most and that is that, that um, people from inside the geographical world we were living in would be the people who would want to invade us. That was that, that remained. It didn't really die. And then, of course, after that, after the war, immediately after war, the huge source of anxiety was the atom bomb. Yes. Nuclear, the nuclear world was something that people were really, really scared of. And that was only replaced by the Cold War. Mm-hmm. So, it really, you know, the 20th century is a period of... Continuous anxiety, Mm. Um,
1: but it explains why Menzies was so successful in a way that it was like calm waters. The Menzies years, Keating rather unkindly referred to them as the Menzies torpor. But uh, but but there was a sense of kind of steadiness uh, that that I suspect a lot of people wanted
0: taken off you. If you weren't living on a mission at Sherberg, maybe. You know, this is a very selective kind of talk we're talking about. Mm. Aboriginal people have been segregated and remain segregated in lots of ways. You know, from the word go until now. My friend Artie Dawn Daylight was standing in Boundary Street in West End two years ago, Kerry, outside the Greek restaurant on the corner when she, a young. Waitress came out and told her basically that she needed to fuck off outside that corner because she was making the restaurant look untidy on a public footpath. And that's not unusual. So, the you know, this idea of torpor is uh, needs to be interrogated, yeah. I think. My Please. mother was hiding my eldest yeah. brother from authorities, moving desperately from house to house as a young Aboriginal single parent in 52, 53, 54, and living under a house in Holland Park and, and you know, <laughs> it might have been torpor if you were in the white middle class or in the middle class full stop, but for a lot of people it wasn't. Mm.
1: In fact, you, you said earlier that uh, that Indigenous people in Brisbane were also living segregated lives through that same period that the and
0: afterwards. Absolutely. And, you know, just because it's not legal to deny people access to restaurants or bars or particular housing, you know. <laughs> I've, got a, I've got a mate who is, um, has an Aboriginal mother and an African father. He's dark-skinned and he will always send his white wife in to a real estate agent. It's common. It's, it's very common, mm. you know. My um, cousin is dark-skinned and when she has to move house in the middle of next year, she will have to put up with the real estate agent saying, Oh, and which part of India are you from to find out whether she's Aboriginal Indian so that they can refuse her housing? Mm. It's, segregation has not gone away. Yeah.
1: Coming back to, to your, um, your memories of those times, David, you were even blunter in Jono, your first book, when the narrator, Dante, observes that Brisbane is, play, a quote, a place where poetry could never occur. Dante, again... Brisbane is the most ordinary place in the world, a place that is so slatternly, so sprawlingly unlovely. And Australia, (laughs) Australia is hardly worth thinking about. (laughs) Is it fair to assume that Dante was speaking for you?
2: Oh, look, I was playing a fairly elaborate game in Jono and it was to uh, claim that uh, I had been dealt a pretty bad card. Uh, ...that Dostoevsky got St. Petersburg... ...and uh, uh, Balzac got Paris... ...and what I'd got was Brisbane. And and that as a writer, I'd been stymied from the start. Because, you know, that's... And then, you know, to go on and create that place... ...not as a place in geography... But in the imagination, mm. you know, and that was really to say that Dostoevsky's St. Petersburg was an imagined place, yeah. as much as a real place. So was Balzac's Paris, and that what a writer is able to do is to discover what is unique about the thing and make it make it real. So you know, there's an elaborate game going on there. Mm. But part of it was an argument between Jono and. Um, Dante, who were really both sides of myself. And uh, part of it is this thing of saying it can't be done and then somehow getting it done.
1: I was struck by the fact that, that you read your first Shakespeare when you were eight. Around 12 you were reading Wuthering Heights and Jane Eyre, I think, amongst others. Very sort of European-oriented um, reading and apart from the fact that we had 60,000 years of, or 80,000 or even 100,000 years of rich history of storytelling in Australia, your sense of the, of the post-colonial writing history of this place was not great uh, through those, those early times. I mean, how, uh, what did you regard as the depth of Australian literature by the time you started writing?
2: Look, that's complicated because um, every night I listened to a uh, serial on the radio which was called The Search for the Golden Boomerang, uh, which was about a, an Aboriginal boy called Takoni. So there was a, a... there was That was Australia. And then when I was, uh, did the scholarship, the book that was set for the scholarship was um, We of the Never-Never, It was absolutely the most boring and irrelevant book I had ever been made to read. You know, a kid growing up in Brisbane and watching movies and having been involved in the war and all the rest of it, that other world of Australia out there in the outback meant absolutely nothing to me. And it's true, my reading was almost entirely uh, English and European. And that remains so, I would have said, until my mid-twenties.
1: Right. Melissa, uh, what was the family culture you were born into in 1967? And what what are your abiding memories of the Brisbane that you grew up in?
0: Hmm. A very patriarchal family, dominated by a a very damaged Russian father who was... um, He was born the year that his parents arrived on the boat from Russia via Shanghai. And uh, my mother um, basically hid her Aboriginality. She grew up with her Aboriginal family north of Brisbane, very poor, very extremely poor. And after marrying my father um, as an already single parent, uh, made the kind of agonising decision, I think, that in order to keep her kids safe uh, and to keep the family together, that she would um, pass as white or pass as white enough. Uh, So the family... But always instilled Aboriginal values in us kids. So when I came back to Aboriginal culture in my teens, uh, consciously... Uh, it was very familiar to me, even though it hadn't been spoken to me. So it was kind of at the... It was at a crux where white Australian mainstream culture met Russian immigrant culture, met uh, a subterranean Aboriginal set of values and worldview. So, um, yeah, I never knew if I was Arthur or Martha, really. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but... Uh, and, and your memories of outside of the family, your memories of Brisbane those in those early years, so your first... Until the day that your mother told you that you were, in fact, Aboriginal.
0: Until she put the photo of her grandmother on the dresser. And I said, who's that black woman? And she said, that's my grandmother. Um, My memories, I rode around the bush a lot on a horse. Any horse I could find or steal or borrow or pretend was a horse. I used to ride a goat around at one stage. (laughs) (laughs) Some of the horses I rode weren't much flasher than goats actually. And Uh, this was on
1: the outskirts of Brisbane?
0: On the scrubby outskirts, um, around Rochdale, Macrovat. Didn't ever go into the CBD. That was... um, See, Mum had grown up near Gympie, but in a a very small place called Wolvi, which you may know. And... uh, hiding from the town, because town was where authority was. Town was where people could take your children off you. Town is where you needed money in order to operate. So they were basically um, almost subsistence farmers in a way. Uh, and that continued on when um, when I was growing up anyway. I, I don't even remember going to the, the city before I was about 16 or 17 and I was old enough to catch a bus on my own, mm. according to my mother's. View of the world. So, so you spent the first. Your, your mother was
1: inculcating Indigenous um, values. That's just in those, who she was in yeah. those early years. Yeah. Yes, because it was who she was. Mm. But you spent the first fourteen years of your life thinking that you faced the future of a white girl. You, your friends all thought of you the same way, I imagine. Can you remember why your mum chose, first of all, not to tell you much earlier? and then suddenly to tell you in your mid-teens?
0: She would have told me because she knew what white privilege meant and what it meant was a better life and a safer life. Um, and I can't speak for how people saw me. I got asked a lot where I was from as a kid and as a teenager when I, I spent a bit more time in the sun. So I was quite brown. Um, I came back from Stradbroke Island one time and my um, father, who was a A damaged man and a very working class Australian when he wasn't speaking Russian to his Russian rellos and he said, oh, look at the little nigger girl back from Stradbroke Island. So what people saw when they met me might have been quite different to what I thought I was.
1: Mm. But how did it change your world, your life, to to, to know that?
0: Well, I went, oh, that's why we've all got olive skin and my brothers have all got curly hair, but all I cared about at that age was karate. I'd shifted from horses to karate, and uh, yeah, I I didn't have a racialised appreciation of the world until a bit later on, and it was because I had an Aboriginal boyfriend at 15 and 16 and and onwards, and he said, you're, he probably said something like, you're part Aboriginal, and I, this is at 14ish, and he said, and I said, I don't think so, and he said, yeah, go and talk to your parents, and I did and I said something and then Mum brought out this photo and she didn't actually say anything to me. Mm. She'd put the photo up and I don't know why she didn't say it directly.
1: So so did you come to see, I mean,
0: you... I I should add, sorry, that if, if I'd grown up with my oldest brother, it would have been obvious because he looks stereotypically Aboriginal, but my father, my damaged father's extreme violence drove him away from the family. Uh about the time I was born. And so I never knew him growing up. He basically fled in fear of his life. And so the family changed.
1: After you wrote uh, Too Much Lip, you observed that uh, that when you'd got to about the 40,000 word mark, yep. you were surprised, quote, at how very close to family history I was treading. Yes. Can you talk to that?
0: Um, a bit. I'm not at liberty to divulge anyone's secrets. Um, Yeah, fiction is a funny thing. If you, I think if you do it right, and I don't know if this is your experience, Trent, but if you do it right, you find yourself writing the truth and you think think it's come out of your great wellspring of genius and imagination, (laughs) but, you know, you're just recycling something from your subconscious or your parents' subconscious a lot of the time from the zeitgeist, maybe. Uh, Yeah, at 40,000 words, I I had a conversation with a family member and I had to um, make a decision about whether I keep telling this story or not. And then, again, another revelation (laughs) towards the end of the book, at about 75,000 words, and it's, oh, my God, it's happened again. Uh, And then, in a much smaller way, uh, someone who works in Aboriginal journalism said to me, I really like your book. Um, This is a lesbian woman. I want to give it to my girlfriend to read, um, but I'm hesitating because she left her family home at 16 after stabbing her uncle with a pair of scissors, which is almost exactly what happens in the book. So um,
1: (laughs) So there was was a lot of humour, also incredible rawness, anger, hurt, tragedy, dysfunction, violence, love, but permeating it all, deep injustice. Deep yep. injustice, and you told me a little bit about about your mum's history and your grandmother's history. Mm. Just just talk to that for one moment, because at a certain point, those those things would have all been unfolding for you too.
0: Oh yeah.
1: Was it your grandmother who would have starved to death, but for no, it's
0: my mother.
1: Your mother. Yeah,
0: yeah mum was born in twenty six. Um, lived as a small child in Tin Can Bay and Wolvi up near the Gympie area. Um, yeah, and they... they li- Probably the town viewed it as a kind of small version of a black's camp, I imagine. They would, definitely would have been seen as coloured people or possibly as half-castes. And um, there was my great-grandmother, my grandmother, my mum, my mum's siblings... And there was also an Indian family in the picture somewhere, but they weren't living exactly there. In a, on the outskirts of town and extremely poor. My gran- none, no one was eligible for any welfare payments because, um, you know, they were for white people. And, uh, yeah, my mum said if they hadn't had the oysters, the wild oysters that they harvested, um, she would have starved to death. And she meant that literally the fishing fleet came into Tin Can Bay and uh, my great-grandmother would go down to the fishing fleet a couple of times a week and they would give her one fish and that's what kept my family alive through the Depression and possibly before the Depression too because I don't think it was just the Depression. And, you know, I went to the Gympie Historical Society or somewhere up there and I was talking about this and, and someone said, oh, yeah, everyone was poor in the Depression. And I thought, and I wish I'd said it, but I didn't say it at the time. I said, yes, most people were poor in the Depression, but the people who are supposedly our white relatives from up that way were sailing first class to England while my mother was eating bush food so that she wouldn't starve to death. But staircase wit.
1: Trent you were born in 1979. You've written graphically about some of the parts of Brisbane you grew up in. Before we get to your memories of the Brisbane you knew as a child, can you describe the family culture that
3: you were born into? Oh, um, well, uh, a culture of drug dealers, (laughs) yeah, it was, um... From birth? Yeah, well, from my first memory, I mean, and talk about place. It's
0: very early to start dealing drugs.
3: Too. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> really savvy five-year-old. <laughs> hey, you want? Some? <laughs> um, yeah, no, no. I mean, my like we talk about place. You know, I just have you know my most vivid earliest memory, you know, and it's the beginning of subconscious sort of or sort of consciousness for me is uh, a suburb called Brassel in Ipswich. If anyone knows Brassel. Um, low set, ramshackle house, and I look at a freckle that's now fading on my thumb. As a boy, I, it's 1984, it must be, and I'm 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 looking down at this thumb, and then I turn to my left, and there's this. Man with, like, hair like yours, Kerry, shaggy, sort of John Lennon. I thought <laughs> you were going to so say shaggy. Sorry. Oh, you know, your beautiful, sort of buoyant head of, you know, just, strawberry blonde hair. Just this move on. hair like that. Just right, move on. It
1: <laughs> it's becoming embarrassing, actually. I'm not quite sure why it's still that it, colour. He
3: look like um, John Lennon in 1966, like, help era. And, um, and, uh, and I turned to this guy, and I never forget it. I, it was the, my first memory, and I say, I love you, Dad. And uh, this, this really sweet man ruffled my hair and he said, I, I love you too, mate, but I'm not your dad. And it uh, turned out that guy... And that sort of blew my mind. I was like, how's that work? Because I really care about you. And, uh, and it turned out he was just a man that my mum loved dearly. And, uh, but he happened to be a really dangerously successful heroin dealer. And, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, and then the, you know, when you asked me about the type of world... You know, the other, and you know, the most ground-breaking place as a boy that I probably ever saw was when my oldest brother Joel, I'm um, the youngest of four boys, Joel, Ben, Jesse, Trent, and uh, Joel, we're all just, you know, Queensland ruffian kids, barefoot and dirt all over our faces and feet, and uh, Joel taps me on the shoulder, and he says, um, Trent, come and have a look at this, we've found something in this guy's room, it was the man my mum loved, and uh, he's basically the character of Lyle in my book, Boy Swellers Universe, and... Uh, Joel finds basically a secret access in Lol's built-in wardrobe down to a dark room, um, which has one thing inside it built into the earth. There's a brick wall, a makeshift wall, and there's one thing inside that, that room, and it's a rotary dial red telephone. And all us boys are just losing our minds at this thing, like, what the hell's going on? And uh, we would later find out, you know, in, in only in our late teens that that was where they packed the drugs and sort of. And it was always it was a sort of a safe room for this guy. If the cops came and stuff, you anyway, know. What I'm trying to say about place there is that that dark room in the ground opened up some very bright rooms in my mind, you know. And uh, and I started to realise there are things that the adults in my world weren't telling me, and uh, there were things I needed to discover. And there was there was. Um, there were just other sort of worlds that I wasn't aware of and, you know, all of these things you look back on you realise later in life. But uh, but I definitely had a sense of of great mystery as a boy then and, of course, then, you know, you talk about culture, then that guy got put away for 10 years, it all went south and the Dalton boys got sent over to Brackenridge. That begins what I call my sort of red brick kind of um, yeah. housing commission kind of life for, like, you know, up until I was 18, you know, and that, and that is you know, all those adjectives, all those things you said, you know, when Melissa's telling her incredible story is, you know, that's the beginning of, you know, drunk blokes, so much love, so much humour, so much violence, um, so many footballs as my best friends and staying out until as long as I can and wishing the sun doesn't go down so I don't have to go up the side concrete ramp and uh, deal with what you have to deal with, you know, and... Uh, and but also just the beauty of that of being raised by my old man and sort of um, you know f- five blokes in a house painted pink because that was the cheap paint that dad could get off his mates, and you
1: know
3: so just the five this... five blokes are your dad and you and your three brothers. Yeah, 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 totally. Being and raised, mum by... was. Oh well, yeah, she was, you know, yeah, <laughs> I yeah briefly you know at Boggo Road Women's yeah. yeah. So she was um she was doing her you know she was doing her time and and she was facing her, freaking demons, kicking, kicking a lot of stuff um, and becoming the incredible woman that she is today, you know? And uh, so, you know, yeah, she was only there for two years, but then, you know, so I you know, even say that sort of publicly, that that certainly isn't the thing that defines her, but it certainly defined our lives, you know? certainly defined my sort of, you know, kind of seven till nine type age, mate, you know? So it was sort of, um, yeah, it was quite a wild time, yeah. So Eli Bell in Boy Swallows
1: Universe was a very effective eavesdropper uh, <laughs> on adult conversation, which I assume, assume means you were too. Oh, yeah, yeah. So what were the adult conversations around you that impacted?
3: Oh, that's great. Um, uh, learning about love, learning about why my old man screwed it all up. You know, that, that were the ones I was always really learning. It was like, why don't you love that woman as much as I love her? How come you don't miss her as much as I do? And um, how can I help you uh, learn about how great she is? And in some dream world, it might all be cool again, you know? And uh, so they're probably the ones that I was probably hooking on to the most. And then um, all the other ones that I was really attuned to, and, you know, this, this is a common occurrence for a lot of Aussie kids, is, um, uh, is has anyone said anything to the people I love that is going to create violence? And you're very highly tuned to that type of thing mm. in 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 Brackenridge in the late '80s and early '90s. You were definitely It was a sort of a super sense that kids had, and a lot of my mates and I, I definitely had, where you were hyper vigilant and you were hypersensory um, aware of um, you know any possible thing that c- could create the madness. And you know, so yeah, like and and then but also just eavesdropping about books and amazing writers and. Um, learning also that there's a place called New York and London, and, uh, and that that invisible wall that surrounds Brackenridge might not be as far as you go. Mm. I'll come back to that in a second, but I guess your mum and the man that you thought
1: was your dad when you were four were part of Brisbane's first heroine generation, mm. which was pretty heavy for you, but you also knew of Brisbane as a child in a way I would think no other writer I can think of had, and that is the, that criminal underworld. Um, was there and, and and some of the criminals that you knew, the the great
3: escapologist,
1: the
3: great the, oh the, Jerry the, yeah. oh mate, I mean so, oh, I thought you were meeting all the really dark, really really dangerous people, and and this guy was dangerous, but I mean we knew some some serious people. I'm coming talking about our, all. Our, of them. Our, I'm talking yeah, about well, that. Whole them, I mean the world. You know there, there were people we knew that are you know you know have recently been on the cover of the Courier Mail, and uh, but uh, but um. <laughs> Yeah, dead set. And uh, So
1: but... my, my question is, was there anything
3: seductive about oh. that world as you moved through your adolescence? Oh, well, you know, my my great friend Slim Halliday, you know, when I was a boy, you know, he, he's just this guy who I considered looked like Buddy Holly and he did odd jobs around our house. And then when I become a journalist, I go down into the Courier Mail archives and realise my mate Slim Halliday has a file this big written about him and, uh, you know, he did time for 30 years for killing a guy that he potentially didn't. Didn't kill and got sort of fitted up for the job by the very people who would create what we know in Queensland as the joke and uh, you know the most incredible sort of corrupt period of Queensland history. Um, My mate, yeah, Slim Halliday. Well, Slim Halliday was the man who gave me and my mum particularly a lot of wisdom about life and uh, and then you know. and then he dies and then, and then I write a book about a boy wanting to bust into Boggo Road Women's Prison on Christmas Day to save his mum's life. That's all because I've just missed my mum out at out Brighton and Brackenridge, and who better for Eli Bell to go to for advice than the great Slim Halliday, my yeah. old sort of babysitter type guy. But, um, you know, but, you know, around that, Kerry, those guys had learned a lot of lessons, you know, and, and again, I come back to this thing, you know, what's the difference between him and the seduction of it? You know, I had this beautiful guy named Noel, my old man, just going, if you go down that road, I will kick your ass. Mm. Like a, a man who has the humility to say, um, don't you dare follow in my footsteps and you better, well, bloody not follow in Slim's footsteps. So this, uh, is, this is the point I'm coming to. David yeah.
1: started reading Shakespeare at eight and Wuthering Heights and Jane Eyre at 12. You, on the other hand, were reading, <laughs> were reading Steinbeck and Hemingway from quite an early age. <laughs> Now, you say that was your father's influence. Oh, yeah, yeah. But you must have been receptive. You must have had a great sense of curiosity or maybe even the need to escape. But I wonder whether that might have been the part of your life that saved your childhood, oh. the reading, which came from your
3: father. Oh, mate, why did the universe give me one ability? Absolutely one. I cannot build anything with nails. I can barely drive a car. I can barely speak in public without <laughs> friggin' rambling on. But the universe gave me this gift, Carrie. It frickin' gives me the shivers. I, I don't know if you guys feel the same way, but...
0: No, I'm a good driver. <laughs> <laughs> I was driving Uber five years ago. Are
3: you serious? Yeah. Miles Franklin winning Uber, Uber driver.
1: 2016. I that. That, is that, 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 Uber? that in itself, I suspect, says a lot about support for
3: the Australian arts. <laughs> yes, yes. Come on, Australia. Yeah, yeah. Um, oh, Kerry, you're giving me chills because it terrifies me, mate. It terrifies me. If, and you know what, you know what happened with that book, Boy Swallows Universe. My, my wife and I were in the kitchen where we're living now in the sort of suburbs in Brisbane. What was the name of that book again? <laughs> I wasn't doing that. I promise I wasn't doing that. I was just saying it. But um, but, um, and she said, you know what terrifies me, Trent, is what if um, what if that guy—I can't say his name—but Lyle. Um, what if he didn't go down, and what if you boys got to 18 and and kind of were really seduced by it and saw that there's some real quick money and some easy money to be had, and that terrified me, and uh, and and it really did sort of show me that uh, I was so fortunate to be able to be to just string a couple of sentences together to be able to process the stuff that you you you're you're seeing in you know the fibro, amid the fibro walls of those houses, you know, and and it's. It's an incredible gift to be able to um, to just process that in such a powerful way because one other way of doing it is through Jim Beam. You know what I mean? And I have no doubt, like, it's in my blood, mate, that sort of DNA of, like, you know, we love booze in my family. It's just, like, I love the stuff. But what I, thankfully, what I love more is words. You know, and that's in my blood as well. And, you know, I have no doubt without that, I'd be bloated and eating Red Rooster chips, like, every night. But, yeah. Last question on this part of the... Of the... Oh, thank you.
1: <laughs> last last question for this part of the... <laughs> Melissa just said, you say that like that's a bad
2: thing. <laughs>
1: <laughs> what, whatever else people might take from Boy Swallow's universe, there's a big lashing of hope, hardship and hope. Oh, yeah, Were yeah. you conscious from the outset of that sense? Of Hope when you were
3: writing the book that became so central to the book as you wrote it here's a cool thing here 's what I thought about Carrie, and here 's something I think about all the time before I write anything. Uh, four Dalton boys it 's midnight, uh, and we 're running down that left concrete ramp that was on every house and commission home in Brackenridge and a lot of the every, yeah every, anyone who 's lived in one of those homes know exactly where the concrete ramp is, and it's shit's gotten pretty wild. And, and I'm crying because I'm the youngest boy and I was the friggin' waterworks baby and, uh, and everyone's worried about Trent, uh, emotional, sensitive Trent, and, uh, and I'm friggin' weeping, going, what the fuck is going on in our lives? And we're halfway down McKearing Street and my beautiful older brother's making gags and I'm suddenly laughing and I'm not crying anymore. And that is the power of friggin' love and siblings and, and people who guide you through. And, and you know, that's hope. Like, that, that, that is hope to me, you know. I'd I, 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 I never had to look any further. I didn't have to look into sort of some Oprah Winfrey TV show or something. I just had to turn left and talk to my brother Joel, you know, and, uh, and those incredible people who sort of will say, hey, man, we're getting out of here, you know, and, uh, and that's incredibly powerful. Yeah. Okay.
1: So I want to explore with all of you now the, the pull of history in shaping your work. David, how did you come to write Conversations at Curlow Creek? A book published in 1996, but set in the colony of New South Wales in the 1820s, built around a conversation through a single night between a convict turned bushranger and the trooper who was was going to hang him in the morning. Both men were from Ireland. What put you on that path? Why that early part of Australia's colonial history? Why Ireland, given your Lebanese, Portuguese, English origins?
2: What was the pull? It's very hard at this uh, point to remember. I think that book started being a book about a different kind of um, uh, subject. And th- that subject came up... I mean, it's set in 1920, in 1827. And that's the moment when Australia, as it existed then, which was just Sydney, really... Um, was no longer going to be under the jurisdiction of the army, but there was going to be a police force. And it was also a moment at which there was panic in the community because they thought there was going to be a rebellion from the Irish um, component of the place and that they were going to take over. And uh, really, it really just started from all the questions. That came up at that moment, and the, the the book, as as I see it anyway, is a book that's um, it's about a lot of questions about the meaning of life, the meaning of criminality, the meaning of injustice, the meaning of people who devote themselves to justice, but it has to be in a criminal way. Um, Uh, people who find they've committed sins and don't know whether it's going to be forgiven. Uh, The other thing I really wanted to do was create something that had all those questions and all sorts of people in predicaments, but there was no answer to any of the questions. And to see if you could actually bring off a book that was about questions which were not answerable. I also wanted to do something which um, you know, is a, is a question about reading. And that is that when we read a book, uh, we realise that we're in a tragic situation because life altogether is tragic and it always ends with death. But writing and literature and the arts is about hope that there is a different ending... And I've always been committed to the idea that the greatest kind of literature is, in fact, comedy, because that, in in fact, looks at life and says, I will not be limited by the fact that everything leads to destruction and to death. I will create um, a world which has a happy ending. And what happens in this book is that the reader is led to want the man who's going to be hanged to get off, and we do not know at the end of the book whether he got off or not. So... Um, but you've
1: talked at the same time of, of uh, in your books, wanting to give characters a second chance.
2: Yeah, yeah. And that's, that's the great thing about uh, the world of the imagination. Look, One of the things that I've become more and more aware of uh, over the years... Is that we are creatures who spend one third of our entire life on this planet asleep, mm. and in that world of sleep, I'm, I'm working on changing that. <laughs> in that world it's taken of me sleep, a long time. we dream, and that world of dreams, which has its own freedom from chronology and from uh, uh, cause and effect. That has its own shaping of stories and its own shaping of what life is all about. So we get an education there. And I think that more and more I I am attracted to the way uh, writing can, in fact, um, recreate what we learn about being in that time when we're asleep and when we have stories which are not um, conditioned by life. Yeah. And that, that, that book tries to, to offer that to you. Well, one, one quote that, uh, that
1: stands again, this is about place. This is Adair. Adair is the name of the officer, the trooper officer who's come to hang the prisoner, and uh, and he says, uh, it, you're right, what a place this is, Adair thought. God knows what things have happened here and gone unre- unrecorded by men or are on the way towards us. Will we ever know the true history of it, the secret history stored away in the dark folds of the landscape in its scattered bones of a paradise found or lost? I'm challenging you on this, I suppose, because it was 25 years ago that you would have written it What was that about? What were you you putting in Adair's mouth there?
2: Very hard to go back 20, 30 years Mm. and uh, know what was in your mind. I think, look, it's something that I I, I would just say about writing itself, and that is that um, writing for me is not about what I know, but what I don't know and what I will only discover through the writing itself. And often the writing kind of leads you to places that you didn't uh, know you could go to. Uh, But you need to go there because that's where the answers to the questions are. And I just trust that absolutely. And I think over a long writing life, um, that is something that has more and more interested me and which I trust more and more. And so, you know, writing is about discovery of what you, what you don't understand and what you don't know. And if that's exciting to you, then it will also be exciting to the reader. But on that formula, which I'm
1: just caught by, but if, by that formula, you would never stop writing because you would never stop, you, you would never reach a point where you know everything.
2: Yeah, that's right. But um, And I think, you know, I I, I would say that I am not writing any more fiction. That doesn't mean that I'm not still pursuing those questions. I still write poetry. Um, But also, I think, you know, if you're a writer and if you take the business seriously, you know the point at which you have said what you have to say and you don't say any more because all you'll you'll be doing is muddying the waters of that body of work that you have. And uh, that's the most important achievement of writing for me, is a body of work which um, makes sense in which all the different books speak to one another um, and amplify one another so that when you add another book, and you go back and look at the previous book, you see that that book has been changed by what the new book is doing. I mean, that's the fascination of being a writer to me. And I think it's a very, very serious business. It's a moral business. It's something that's been given to you. And um, you don't play with it. So
1: both of you feel it's something that you've been given. It's not, it's, yeah. Melissa, uh, your new book due out next year, also goes back to Brisbane's early decades of white settlement. Mm. So like David, you were drawn to Australia's early colonial history, Mm. but from a very different perspective. Mm. What can you tell us about it and why you've written it?
0: One way of telling you about it um, is to respond to Trent's statement about the uh, 80s and 90s and the joke being the most corrupt era of Queensland politics. Um, I think the early colonial era, where the the men in parliament and the men running uh, white European Queensland were the same individuals who were out there slaughtering Aboriginal people on mass, or organising for us to be slaughtered on mass, as they stole land, as they engineered a genocide, uh, was. You know, remarkably more corrupt than what we see at the moment. Not many people are aware yet, um, and I, I don't know if my book will help, I don't know if anything will help really, but you've got to operate in hope, as David was saying. Uh, the number of people killed on the Queensland frontier, right? Aboriginal people killed on the Queensland frontier, was about 100,000 people according to the archaeologist and historian, Lindley Wallace. And that's far more than Australians were killed in World War I. There's one memorial that I'm aware of, and it's tucked away behind the Magistrate's Court in Roma Street in an obscure spot and has been vandalised, as far as I know. So that's one source of my interest. Another source of my interest is trying to understand the world that my great grandmother knew, Um, but I've actually gone two decades back from that. She was born about 1875 and I'm writing about 1855 and the really interesting thing about that era, um, I was talking to Raymond Evans, a radical historian um, who was professor at UQ for a long time, and I'd already decided to write the book, I had started doing the research, have always been fascinated by Tom Petrie. the the character or the personage of Tom Petrie, who was the first uh, European ever to live with, uh, well no, no, that's not strictly true. He grew up with the Brisbane Blacks, spoke the language, understood the culture very fluently and was initiated. So he crossed that racial and cultural and linguistic divide. And the reason he could do that was because he lived in an era before the segregation and the Assimilation policies had come down so hard that the society was cleaved in two. This is a time I'm writing about of possibility and that's why I'm calling the book Eden Glassy. It's not about McGuncheon, the Yagara place because I can't know that place. You know, I'm I'm too modern, I'm too far removed to know McGunton. That would be an overreach for me to try and write that. It's not about Brisbane, because Brisbane came later. It's about this time of flux when the numbers of Aboriginal people, a bit like you were saying, David, you grew up in an American Brisbane. Eden Glassie, 1855, 1854, just before the hanging of Dundalee in Queen Street, the great resistance leader, the numbers of Aboriginal people and Europeans in Brisbane were roughly equal. Uh-huh. Yeah. Mm. So it's this kind of tipping point. That's what interested me. So, uh,
1: what kind of emotional roller coaster was it for you, or was it a, an emotional roller coaster? Was it an as it been an emotional experience for you? Twenty
0: nineteen was. I spent twenty nineteen reading a lot of historical texts, some uh, primary texts, but mostly secondary texts. And um, it's a book about entrepreneurship. It's about a love story between a, a Yugamber boy from Narang Uncle John with the permission of Auntie Pat O'Connor who travels up to Wollongabba to go through his um, through a ceremony that it's appropriate for his time of life he's about 17 and the white girls are starting to look at him in what's now the Gold Coast and say his family's terrified that if he gets involved in any way with a pastoralist's daughter that'll be it, catastrophe will unfold so they take him up to Wollongabba for his um, ceremony. He gets stuck there and falls in love with Nita, who's the Aboriginal servant of the Petrie family. And um, of course, I've forgotten what the question was now. But anyway, well, no, it
1: was—it was, it was about about whether it was a particular emotional roller coaster for you. I, I imagine emotion yeah, is, mixed, it, is mixed up is in every coaster. book you've written.
0: Being mm. a black fella is a roller yeah. coaster, you know. There's. It, it it doesn't stop. So you just park it and you keep going and you put one foot in front of the other and you laugh and you drink and you hope that no-one dies this week.
1: Do you think... Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm departing from text here, but... No, you can't do, do you that. Think, do you think we're... Just very quickly, do you think we're making real progress in terms of non-Indigenous people in this country actually starting slowly... To begin to come to an understanding of the of the real story of of colonial Australia and post-colonial Australia,
0: Mabo made a difference, and my books are received differently in twenty twenty one to how they were received in nineteen ninety seven and nineteen ninety eight and nineteen ninety nine structurally Mabo changed things because non-Aboriginal Australia was able to go, oh, OK, there's a framework for us to understand what's reality. And, you know, it's chucked up all kinds of issues. Native Title is a very flawed system. Hmm. Um, but it's the, safer now yeah. for white people to start to say, oh, yeah, this, there were Aboriginal people here. I mean, you'll remember John Howard ridiculously saying in 87 or 88 that there were no Aboriginal people here before Cook. I, I, I still can't get my head around that. It's now a bit safer because pe- white or non-Aboriginal people think, okay, there's this native title structure, and they might not think that consciously, but it's filtered through. Um, and so it's safer for, for people to say, oh, there's an Aboriginal family in my street. It's not safer for us because our kids are still being taken away. But there's an emerging Aboriginal middle class. So, yeah, progress has been made. But it's hard for...
1: And over the... And, well, it certainly is. And over the next decade, we're going to see, uh, I think, a serious process of truth-telling going on right around Australia.
0: Yeah, a bit which... of truth-listening would be good too. Well,
1: <laughs> presumably that will come. I mean, <laughs> it, it is a part of the process, isn't it? Yeah.
0: That's the process you're talking about, yeah.
1: So, uh, we going to run out of time in the not-too-distant future here tonight. But, uh, Trent, growing up in Brisbane, uh, sorry, the, the, in terms of where the history is mm. in your kit bag, what what is the import of history for you in, in your writing? With your second book, with the weight of such massive success from universe, uh, welcome though it was hanging around your neck, <laughs> um, why Darwin in 1942? Was it just a convenient backdrop to suit your story, or was it significant for
3: you? Oh, uh, firstly, running away from myself and then finding myself in the forests of uh, outside Darwin, um, but just getting out of this, you know, and, and trying to sort of just write a tale. Um, you know, essentially, my daughter came home and went, um, you know, Dad, you wrote about two beautiful boys, but you're a father of two girls. Why don't you write a story about two beautiful girls? I was like, that's, that's a good idea. Um, and uh, But I loved the frontier town of Darwin in that time and, and it was Wild West put on the northern tip of Australia. Um, I just wanted to write a story that was vivid and, and really spoke of this country for the beauty that I had seen on a regular basis just in my journalism. I found myself going back to Darwin many, many times and each time I'd go there I'd learn more about World War II history and, and I was just like really into this whole sort of... And then an incredible story, um, you know, really inspired some of that, um, you know, fallen Japanese fighter pilot drops in on Australian soil and, uh, and an incredibly brave Indigenous man named Matthias Olingara is becomes the first um, Australian to capture a Japanese POW on Australian soil. That's an incredible story. And, uh, you know, I was like, why didn't Baz Luhrmann make that movie? And, um, and uh, yeah, and no, I just wanted, wanted to write that. But that, that is a legacy of all those books back in Brackenridge, though. You know, I wanted to write a book, to be honest, Kerry, I wanted to write a book for some, you know, not to get too Bruce Springsteen about it, but I wanted to write a book for some kid in Brackenridge that helps them. Like, Boyce Wells Universe was the book about them, and I wanted to write all Ashram Ring's guys that, for them, as in this is the one that's going to help you escape into Oz. You know, and, and uh, I thought that was a really sort of powerful way of doing that through the eyes of this, this girl who finds herself, you know, befriending this incredible Japanese soldier. And, you know, it was all about finding love in the most unexpected places. It
0: sounds like Anita Heiss's book. <laughs> she wrote about an Aboriginal um, kid on a mission that befriends a Japanese um, POW hiding in World
3: War II. I just realised that. Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'll have to check it out, but, yeah, yeah it's... Uh... Don't, don't check too closely. <laughs> yeah, 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 But it sounds great. But, yeah, no, I, I just think, it, you know, I just think it's absolutely that idea of using the past to, you know, to talk about even your own self and, and your own present. And, you know, that's, that's deeply... That's all the journalism side of me coming out too. You know, that's just mm. me going, like, searching for great yarns and going, well, yeah, OK, we're here... We've got this great gift we humans call storytelling, you know, and, and uh, you know, we can use it to tell and remind everyone about all these incredible things that happened. You
1: know? So with the five minutes we've got left, I'm going to ask each of you to come back to where we started. Um, how do you compare the Brisbane, the state, the country you live in today with the place that you grew up in? Uh, because the place you grew up in is now consigned to history.
2: David? Oh, look, I think the—I um, I, mean—the huge change that happened in Australia was that, and except for the uh, a, a time in the mid-nineteenth century when there were the gold rushes, Australia had always been basically a very poor place, and then immediately after the war, it became. We, 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 we began a period of increasing affluence. And that is what now leads us. I mean, the, the thing we care most about uh, is this thing we call the economy. And um, that has replaced anything else that we might once have oriented our life towards. And I think there are huge dangers in that. And I think that is the source of real decadence. Um, you yeah. know, it, it means that the population keeps growing and we keep saying it's got to keep growing because we've got an economy that has That's to right. be fed. That's These right. people have to become... Commu- com- com- the consumers. Beings. And uh, at the same time, we've created something which we claim to be very pleased about, which is our multiculturalism. And that is true, and multiculturalism is different from multi-ethnic. Multiculturalism is really about the fact that people um, uh, don't assimilate as they once did, and that's one of the things that happened. You know, I mean, Uh, My my grandparents came to Australia um, not speaking English, uh, uh, but they said to themselves, I am here now. I am never going to go back to the place I've come from. My children will be brought up as people who belong here. And so not one of those kids uh, uh, were not English speakers right from the beginning, and because they were Catholics, Although, actually, there were Melkites, but there was no Melkite mm. Roman Catholic Church. So they became, they went to the local Catholic Church, and something happened to them, which happened, I've said to everybody then, if you were a Roman Catholic and you came to Australia, you were Irish wherever you came from.
1: <laughs> and
2: that was true, yes. that was true. Yes. That's part of why I was writing a book about mm. Ireland. Yeah. Um, What we have now is, and we have to be very, very careful about it, is a society which is just so divided. And I can't believe that um, uh, difficult and poor as that country I grew up in. What grew out of that was a kind of morality that comes with adversity. And that is that people looked after one another. And that that was very important. And it, it has remained... In spite of our affluence, you know, you don't hear people in Australia say, um, I don't want to pay taxes because people say, I know when I pay my taxes, it looks after people who are out of work or people who are old or whatever. If you say that in the United States, people say over my dead body, we have never said that. So we have hung on to that. But the country is divisive in a way which I find very, very, very alarming. Which
1: makes you wonder what's coming down the tunnel. Melissa?
0: What's Brisbane the, the, like the,
1: now? the Brisbane, the Queensland, the Australia
0: mm. of
1: today compared to the one that you were born into. Mm.
0: Yeah, I think I agree with David. Um, the economy... You know, there's this there's this thing called the economy. I heard someone on the radio the other day saying, they were from some real estate mob, and they were saying, we need immigration to Australia, you know, economic immigration to Australia to resume because those people will pay taxes to the state governments and that's going to fund this, that and the other, um, at the same time as acknowledging that housing... Um, was going to be needed by these incoming people and so that would add to the housing crisis. Uh, we live in a country where it's normal for some people not to have a house. I think it should be illegal for anyone not to have a house. Yeah? I think it, if you're a, a poor person or an Aboriginal person and you don't house your children safely maybe because you're forced to live with domestic violence or forced to live in some shithole that's not fit for human consumption, the state can come in and will come in and take your children off you. If you're an Aboriginal mother living with a violent partner because there's nowhere else to go, they will come and take your children away from you and say you're an unfit parent. But the governments of this country under neoliberalism can engineer a society where people just do not have housing, and that's seen as okay. That's seen as normal. So, yeah, I agree with you. It's this economic bullshit. Let's look at what's happening on the ground. Who's got a house? Whose kids are hungry? Whose kids are, aren't going to school because of racism? Who can't get on the NDIS when they live in Esk and their feet don't work and they lie on the floor of their 20-foot square donger, all night because no-one is around but they can't get on the NDIS because they're not disabled enough, you know? Let's start putting people first. Let's start acting like everybody matters.
1: Well, funnily enough, economy...
0: Sorry, I didn't answer your question, but I
1: uh, No, that's OK. Funnily enough, economy is people. That's what it
3: boils down to. Well, it should e- be. Yes, yeah. yeah. Very briefly, Trent, because we're out of time. Oh, I'll just say something like we were talking about before, the lemon light. Yes. You know, I, I love that the lemon light of this area doesn't change at 5pm, and uh, I love that. I love that my daughters can sprint across the low tide of Morton Bay, and it feels exactly the, the same as it did in 1986. And I hope, in terms of place, we don't fuck it up, you know? We, we just we, we keep the beauty and the wonder um, that we have here in this place. And, uh, you know, I love that the, the tall fences, jumping over a fence in the lemon light feels the same. And when you're in that lemon light, that's timeless. It's you, Time stops. And uh, and I feel when I read Jono, I felt exactly like I'm transported. He, he's come forward to my world and I've gone back to his. And uh, that's the power of storytelling. And, you know... 2032, mate, you know, Brisbane is going to host these games and they better bloody well be talking to these two before they do any sort of cultural or opening ceremony stuff because there's so much that we can get right when we show this area to the world and there's so much we can get wrong and, you know, I just hope we can bring the past and the, and the present right back and just show it and just show it in the most amazing lemon light. Trent Dalton,
1: Melissa Lukashenko <laughs> and David Malouf. Thank you very much, and thank you all.
0: Thank you. You've been listening to A Better Future for All in conversation with Kerry O'Brien from Griffith University. Produced by Eddie Laffer and edited by Michael Adams and Andrew Thompson. Visit betterfuture.griffith.edu.au to keep up to date with our upcoming events or catch up on our past events on demand.